today we're going to take a different angle at the traditional Palm Sunday text and within this Shadows and Light uh, series that we're in. So we're looking at Jesus, the King of Sinners, uh, today. Um, you know, many of you know that I grew up in Kentucky, uh, and uh, you, if you watch basketball, uh, don't make any jokes about last night because I'm still bitter about my team losing. But that doesn't change the fact that growing up in Kentucky, I really loved to play basketball. I mean, I, guys, I loved to play basketball so much that I, we, had a, we, did, we didn't have a, a concrete driveway. That was uh, only the rich folks could afford the concrete driveway. So we had a gravel driveway. I had a telephone pole and this old basketball goal on it. And I would play on that thing for hours on end. And in Kentucky, it gets a little colder than it does in Georgia, so it didn't matter if I'd have gloves on or a, my big Dallas Cowboys jacket on or whatever. I was out there shooting hoops all day long, and sure, I lost a few balls uh, to oncoming traffic, but we had a lot of good times on those goals. And I can remember, uh, I, I'd worked my whole life, really, in basketball uh, to, to get up to, to try out for the middle school basketball team. And I experienced uh, something that eventually led me to Jesus uh, through playing basketball, and that was this. I, I, I'm trying out for the basketball team. It's the first time I've really ever had to try out for anything, so it's a really intimidating experience. Can anyone resonate with me on that? You've tried out for something before. It's kind of this kind of weird experience. You're, you're kind of terrified about it. And, uh, and so I, the coaches are watching us. There's hundreds of kids in the gym playing basketball, and they're just kind of making notes. You miss a layup, and they're like, oh, okay. And so, you know, it's just kind of this nerve-wracking experience. And so all of my buddies that I play basketball with make the team and they know it. The coaches then take us into, uh, uh, three of us, into the locker room. And they say, hey, uh, you know, we, we think that all three of you are about the same uh, level of athletic ability, but we only have two spots. And so we wanted to bring all three of you in here to let, let you know that, you know, if we had another spot, we would have you. And I was the kid that didn't make the team. I was the kid that got cut, and all of my friends that I'd shared all of my life with up until that point were on the basketball team. So there was this immediate chasm for me. And not only did I not make the basketball team, but I lost all my friends. I mean, I could try to be that kid that tried to keep up with them uh, even though they were doing their team stuff. Uh, and so it was a very devastating time for me in my life. Maybe, maybe one of the first times that I, I really understood uh, what rejection was about. But in that rejection, um, I ultimately uh, came to know Jesus. Uh, a kid, it's a long story, but a kid on my, uh, I played intramural basketball, and a kid on my intramural basketball team began to invite me into his life and shared the gospel with me, invited me into his home, and I became a, I became a follower of Jesus, the first one in my family. And, uh, and if you would have told me that I was going to be a pastor uh, that day that I came to faith in Christ, I probably would have changed my mind. <laughs> but God is so good. And I, say, I share that story with you um, because I thought rejection was the worst thing in the world. I thought that what I really needed was to be on the basketball team uh, as a junior high student. Maybe you're going through something in your life right now where you think that God, God's will is really one thing and he's showing you something else right now. Because God sees the whole picture even when we can't. And as a Christian, I don't always get uh, what I want, though uh, I never get what I deserve and I always get what I need. That's the that's the goodness of Jesus. And in, the, in this series of, about shadow and light, a shadow is partial light, okay? A shadow is even just like that image. I mean, half of the, half of the guy's face is in the light, half of the guy's face is in the shadow. Uh, we are all prone to live in the shadows. Uh, but the, here's the thing about the shadow. Because a shadow only has partial light on it, as Christians, when we only have partial light on our lives, we only have partial hope. There's still all these other things in our life that are, that are hidden. 
And so what Jesus invites us to is he invites us out of the false hope of self-dependence. He invites us out of the false uh, shadows that we are prone to live in, and he invites us into the full hope of faith in Christ, of casting all of our cares upon him because we know that he cares for us. That's what he invites us into. And, and, and here's my question to you, because here's what I'm always asking myself anytime I listen to a sermon. Why do I need to hear this today? Why do I need to hear this today? And that might be the question that you're asking yourself too, man. I've heard the Palm Sunday text before. I, you know, I'm good. I got this thing cognitively. Here's why you need to hear this, because you and I, every single one of us in this room, are far more self-reliant upon our own selves than we would ever care to imagine. And the only hope for us is that God shed some light on that and bring us closer to full faith in Jesus with our lives. Because here's the truth. The text that we're looking at today is the coronation of a king. It's the coronation of the king of sinners. You see, here's the thing is that Jesus is only a king for those that acknowledge that they're sinners. And that's what we're going to discover today. So if you would stand and let's read our text uh, for today. Uh, A few moments ago, Jorge read uh, from Matthew 21. This text is also in, I think, John chapter 12 and in Mark chapter 11. It's also in Luke 19. And I'm reading from the account in Luke 19. So let's read God's Word together, starting in verse 28. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Evidently that was good enough, right? And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set on it. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks out on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Let's pray together. Father, we notice that your son Jesus is weeping. It's a party. Why is he weeping? Lord, your son Jesus gives us what we really need. There are many times in our life that we think we know what's best. And Jesus always gives us what we need. So Father, would you open our eyes and our hearts today to what we really need? And would you show us the way of Christ uh, as we dive into this today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. All right, you can be seated. 
So we're going we're gonna to do a little bit different thing today, okay? Typically we read kind of, we kind of go through a text when we look at the Bible and we kind of go forward with it. Today I'm going to go backwards with it, okay? A little bit different approach to this. But I was really struck by the fact that Jesus is weeping as he enters into Jerusalem. So that's where I want to start today. And my question is, why does Jesus weep? Why would Jesus be weeping as he's coming into Holy Week? So just to give you a little bit of a context, Jesus uh, raises Lazarus from the dead the day before. Okay, Lazarus was a good friend of his, Mary and Martha's brother. They're in the city of Bethany. Uh, they think Lazarus, the worst thing in the world's happened. Lazarus is dead. Uh, Jesus has the opportunity to come and heal Lazarus before he actually dies. And he says, you know, I'm just going to stay where I'm at for a couple more days because I really want to make sure he's dead. And Jesus did this to show his power over death. He was sending a message before he would ultimately show his power over death on Easter Sunday, right? So, so he's doing this, and so what happens, the book of John tells us, John 12, that when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, um, it attracts a little attention, okay? It attracts a little attention, and so what happens is that all of these disciples begin to follow Jesus. And so the next day, he's coming into Jerusalem, uh, for the Passover feast, a week-long feast that he and his disciples would share together. And that's where we're picking up with what is known as the triumphal entry. So we pick up there. You know, I can, I can remember uh, uh, my daughter Tatum's uh, birthday or second birthday. You know, because celebration kind of elicits all types of emotion, doesn't it? Uh, I can remember us singing happy birthday to her, her little brother Caden, had just been born, and we're singing happy birthday to her, and she's got this big grin on her face, getting ready to blow out the candles, and all of a sudden, something changes, and she begins to kind of bear this look of terror on her face as we're singing, and we're all smiling, and she begins to let out the biggest scream in the world, and she's crying hysterically. She's weeping as we are singing happy birthday to her, and as I read this text, I thought, man, celebration elicits emotion from us. It does. Sometimes it's expected emotion. Sometimes it's not. So they're praising Jesus because they perceive that they will bring him, bring the people of God peace. So, so, so why the weeping is my question. And, and I don't want you to miss this. This is probably the most important thing that I'll say today. Why the weeping? And here's what I think. Because the distance between what Israel wanted and what Israel needed was so great. That's why Jesus comes up on the Passover feast. He's looking over Jerusalem, the holy city. He's riding on a donkey. There's a a makeshift red carpet laid out. I mean, there's a big celebration, and he can't help but stop the processional and begin to weep. They thought they needed one thing, but what they really needed was another thing. And we can ask ourselves the same question as well. You know, what I really want is Brewster's ice cream, specifically New York cheesecake that they only seem to have like every six months. That's what I really want. You know what I really need? I need a salad, right? What I really want is to sit on the couch and watch March Madness basketball for the next three weeks. But you know what I really need? I need to go for a run. What I really want is to really drum up salvation by myself. But what I really need is for Jesus 
to do all the work. We don't know what we need, church. We don't know what we need. So Israel had been under, at this point, had been under the control of like every major world power. Like there were seasons where they were on their own, but for the most part, they were under the dominion and force of other world powers. And so, you know, what, what the Israelites thought that Jesus was going to come do is they thought that Jesus was going to come and free them from Rome. But Jesus came to do something much better. He came to free them from the dominion of sin. Yet they couldn't see it at this moment. And Jesus is weeping because he sees what's going to happen on Friday. And you know what happens on Friday? They're crying out, Hosanna, praise, praise Jesus. You know, he's come to save us on, on Sunday. But on Friday, you know what they're crying out? Crucify him. Crucify him. Put him on the cross. Give us Barabbas the criminal. Because they didn't know what they really needed. And they didn't know what it would cost for peace to come to their lives. Friends, we don't know what we need. And one thing's for certain, we can't give ourselves what we really need. That's why we need Jesus, and that's why what he's saying here is so important. And I think sometimes our hearts are more content to be held captive by sin if only our circumstances would get better. I mean, I think about things that I've prayed before in my life. Um, things that I've been really disappointed in that God did not answer. Maybe one was the basketball team thing, or, you know, it kind of evolves as you get older. And we, we think, God, I really need you to do this for me, and he doesn't do it, and we tend to doubt God. But if God would give us that thing, we would be tempted not to believe that he's actually given us what we really need, which is to deal with our sin. And that's why Jesus came was to, to deal with the sin. The cell, even, even in, the, in the passage here, if you look back at Luke chapter 19, and we're, we're looking at, I think, verses 41 and 42 here. <clears throat> he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Because they're crying out, give us peace, God. You're bringing peace. If you would have known what it would take to give you peace. But he says, you know what, now these things are hidden. And my question is, why were these things hidden Specifically from the Pharisees and the Jewish people's eyes. Why were they hidden? Because they were blinded. You know what they were blinded of? Self-righteousness. They thought they could do it on their own. And I would propose, we're going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about this, that we too get into places where we are blinded by self-righteousness. It blinds us from seeing the things that we really need in life. And this is the big idea of where, we, where we've been going and where we will continue to go today, that Jesus comes to give us what we really need. So let's continue looking in this. Uh, number two, so if the distance between what we, what we need and what we want is so great, if that's what evokes Jesus to motion, let's look at what we really need first. What we really need is for King Jesus to come and save sinners. That's what we really need more than anything. So you think about Jesus as he's walking in, um, and, and he calls for this donkey, and I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. And, and people call this the triumphal entry, right? They... they because it kind of looks like a processional. Um, I've read about other triumphal entries in world history. This is not the same. This, is, this, this triumphal entry that Jesus, this is not the same. He's riding on like a small donkey, okay? He's not riding on a war horse with a huge javelin. He's riding on a small donkey. And it really just paints the picture of what this whole journey of humility has been for Jesus. And for the first time, 
Jesus doesn't silence the celebration. I mean, you look at other parts in the Gospels. Jesus, uh, Jesus says, hey, look, I know I just healed you, but you can go and tell no one that I've healed you. You can't tell anyone. Keep it to yourself. And, you know, like the, like the blind man in John 9, like he can't help it. He goes and tells everyone. Kind of gets Jesus in a little trouble. But this time, he doesn't silence the celebration. He lets it carry on. And he's fulfilling this prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. <clears throat> and here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And listen to this. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This doesn't sound like the kind of king that we would be expecting, right? Jesus is a different kind of king at this part in his journey. So that, you know, picture it. I mean, the disciples, they've never seen Jesus ride on an animal before. He's never shown that type of royalty before. So it says that they go call for the, he tells them to go call for this donkey. It's never been ridden before. It's never been broken. It's this, it's this small animal. And they go get it and they bring it back. And they kind of, they got to boost Jesus up on it because they, they've, they've, he's never been on one of these before. They got to help him get up on it. And so they, they lay out their cloaks, you know, their outer garments. They lay on there. They make a makeshift saddle because they don't have one. And, uh, and then they help Jesus up on it. And then they see for the first time the picture of what a king might look like, even though it's a humble king. Jesus mounted up on the donkey riding in above all the other people, even though he's not much above them. He's above them, and he's, he's going into the city. And they're, they're crying out. You know what they're crying is this uh, psalm, Psalm chapter uh, 118. They're kind of singing this song, and it's called, an, it's called uh, one of the Egyptian Hallels, which is really a, a, a psalm of praise for the pilgrims that would be coming in to the city to celebrate the Passover. So they're singing this song. They're thinking, okay, the Passover, I mean, God has really come to deal uh, with what we need now. You know, He's going to deliver us from Rome. So they're singing this song, and it's, and it's for these pilgrims to sing out. And, and they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, Lord save us. And I think he's just kind of, he's struck by emotion. I mean, just like I was in worship, or at least just struck in a moment. He can't explain what's going on. But as, as they're crying out, he's, I, I, I have to imagine that he's thinking to himself, I will save you. But will you recognize it? Will you recognize the salvation that you really need? And that's why Jesus is sitting there weeping, because he realizes the distance in what they want and what they need is so great. I want to show you a map of just kind of the journey that Jesus goes on into the city. So if you, if you notice, on the lower right-hand side, there's, I know the print's kind of small, but Bethany is about two miles out of Jerusalem. And so to, go, to get to Jerusalem, they would have to go up. The, the Mount of Olives is just east of the city over there. They would have to go up over the Mount of Olives and back down. Uh, in November, I was just there walking down the Mount of Olives on the Palm Sunday Trail. And it's this really steep hill. Hill, And as you get on the top of uh, the Mount of Olives, you can actually see Jerusalem very clearly. And you know what you see as you walk down uh, the Mount of Olives? If, if you'll notice, there, there's, there's the Garden of Gethsemane just a little bit away. Guys, this is like a quarter of a mile away from where they were. So Jesus, as he's walking down, they're saying, Lord, save us. He stops the processional, begins weeping. And you know what he sees over to his right? Their favorite place to go, the Garden of Gethsemane. And do you know what happens on Friday in the Garden of Gethsemane? On Thursday and Friday. Jesus goes there with his disciples and he prays John chapter 17. And he asks God, what does he ask him? Lord, take this cup from me. I can't bear it. Take this thing from me. And he says, but not my will, but yours. And so 
Jesus is giving them what they really need, yet their eyes are blind for what they really need to happen. Jesus had to become sin to make a way for peace for you and I. That's what had to happen. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that He uh, became sin. For, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Jesus came to Jerusalem. This is why He came. This, is, this was His whole purpose, is that He had to bear our sin. And we see that very clearly, what it looks like to bear the sin of the world. Because He goes to the cross. And on the cross, he's separated from the Father because he's bearing the weight of sin for the world. And this is why Jesus had to come. Yet, you know what we want? Wait, see, here's the deal. We're just like Israel, okay? A lot of times I read the Old Testament, I'm like, Israel, come on, guys, get your act together. But you know what God shows me? That's you, bro. That's what he shows me every single time. I'm way more like Israel than I ever want to care to imagine. We, Church, we want... We want the Jesus to come into the city off the Mount of Olives from Revelation 19. But you know what God had to do first? He had to bring in the Jesus of Isaiah chapter 53. Let me read these two and explain it to you just briefly here. Let's read Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is the second coming of Jesus when he will return. Listen to how he comes in. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood and, and the name by which he calls is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written. It's the same name that He's talking about. Here on Palm Sunday, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's the same name. You see, we can't have the Revelation 19 King Jesus coming in without the Isaiah 53 King Jesus coming in first. So let's see what Isaiah 53 says. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bounds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, you shall be redeemed without money. Is this the right text? This, I don't think this is the right text. I'm going to read my version of Isaiah 53. Sorry. Isaiah 53, 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and is one from which men hide their faces. Mm. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, here's this word, that brought us peace. That's how peace had to come. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. All Jesus had to offer on this day when he was coronated as king were tears. That's all he had to offer because he knew that he had to be Isaiah 53 before he could be Revelation 19. Because without Isaiah 53, we're still dealing with sin. We needed humble King Jesus to come and bear our sins so that we could be made new. So my question to you is this, what do you want from Jesus right now? What do you want? What is driving your prayer life? What is driving your spiritual life right now? What is driving your life? What do you want from him? Because if Jesus isn't giving us what we want, you know what we do? We tend to walk away from him, don't we? If you're in a season like that, and and I know many of you probably are right now, that, that Jesus doesn't seem to be making all things new in your marriage or, or giving you quite the amount of money that you, that you think you need to live on or, or maybe, maybe, maybe things at home are a little rough. If you're in that season right now, I want to remind you that you need to look back and remind yourself of what Jesus has already done for you, how he's already dealt with the problem of sin. Even though the circumstances don't seem to be following it like you, like you think they should, he's already dealt with the big issues, the cross. And even in, even in an election year, I, you know, there's a lot of different thoughts on how do you, as a pastor, how do you address the political scene? And I'm so new at this that I don't really know. But I do know this, that there's, there's nobody that's going to take office in the United States of America that's going to do for us what Jesus has done for us. There's, there's, there's nobody that's going to do it. And we don't need anybody to do it because Jesus has already done it. So, so, ch- so church, we can be diligent And what we need to do as good citizens, but we need to rest in the fact that Jesus is king. And even though he came, uh, mounted on a donkey and and in humility, he is going to come back as the Revelation 19 King Jesus. With a big tattoo on his leg and a sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, it just blows my mind to think about that. He's going to come back and redeem us. So we we don't have to have any fear. We We can trust in what he's done and we can trust in what he's going to do because he's never lied before. It's never happened. Never, ever happen. So as we close this thing, let's look at the third point. What we want. So what's the, the distance between what we need and what we want? What we want, ultimately, church, is this. And I know this is probably hard to say, but it's the truth. What we want is to save ourselves. Have you ever noticed inside of you there is a resistance toward God's grace? You don't want to receive it, right? It's like, I don't need that. I don't, need, I don't need that grace. I mean, I, I mean, I can, I mean, there's some things like he can deal with the whole cross thing, but other than that, I mean, I got this thing covered. This is our natural inclination is to resist the grace of God. That's what is so important for every Sunday. You guys to be confronted and myself to be confronted with the word of God and reminded that we're sinners, but that we have a loving Savior, King Jesus, who's come for us. We need to be reminded about the fact that Jesus came for sinners like us. So, as we're looking at uh, Luke 19, uh, we're looking at verses, uh, I think, 39 and 40 here. And it says this, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Hey, tell them to be quiet, Jesus. Quiet them down. You're not the king, you know this. Quiet them. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. There's nothing that's going to stop the praise of God. Like, either you're going to offer it or the stones are going to cry out. 
Because this is God's promised Son. This is the Messiah. He's come to make all things new. Even the stones, even the rocks will cry out. So the Pharisees interrupt this party and they're rebuking Jesus. You see, the Pharisees are kind of this figurehead for self-righteousness. And a lot of times we put them into this category. It's like, well, at least I'm not like the Pharisees, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Pharisee. That's not me. I want to invite you today to take a different perspective of a scripture that we're going to look at in just a second about the Pharisee and the tax collector. I want you to assume as we look at this that you are more like the Pharisee than you would care to acknowledge. That's a hard thing to do, right? Because we, we don't want to see ourselves as that sinful. But I think, I think there's something to gain from that as we look at ourselves more like the Pharisee uh, than, than we're comfortable with. Because here's the, here's the truth about the Pharisees. The Pharisees are so deep into the shadows of self-righteousness that they cannot see the light that Jesus is. This is why Jesus says, this has been, if, you, if you know what would make for peace, um, maybe you would understand this, but for now it's been hidden from your eyes. Jesus knew that they were going to send him to Calvary. It had been hidden from their eyes at that moment. And here's the thing, truth. Here's, here's the truth, church, is that it's not hidden from our eyes now. That we see Jesus high and lifted up. But the question is, will we receive the grace that we actually need or will we stiff arm him? Jesus is not a good crutch, okay? Some of us like to walk. I mean, I, I like to do this too. We like to use Jesus as a crutch when we can't get it done on our own. Yeah, he's, Jesus is not, he's a terrible crutch. Uh, he, he's, he's the worst co-pilot you've ever seen before. You know those little things in your car that says Jesus is my co-pilot? You don't want him as your co-pilot. He's going to crash that plane so that he'll be your pilot. I mean, that's what he wants to do in our lives, right? And, you know, some people say, well, God never gives us more than what we can handle. Jesus always gives us more than what we can handle. Every single time. He will always give us more than we can handle. You know why? Because we've got to depend on Him. It's our only hope. So if you're in a place of just kind of despair right now, you're in, a, you're in a perfect position to depend on Jesus with your life. If you're in a place where you think, hey, man, I got this, you're in like the most dangerous position you could possibly be in. I know that's kind of hard to hear, but that's just the reality. I'm, I'm not doing us any good if we, if we, acknowledge, if we don't acknowledge that fact. He, he knows and loves us too much to endorse our self-salvation project. He loves us way too much to do that. He can't endorse that. So let's look at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 together. Just a couple pages uh, before uh, what we're looking at with uh, uh, the triumphal entry. So Jesus tells this parable, starting in verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's what Jesus says. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I think, I'm not, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I mean, look at me. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector... Standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'll tell you, this man went away to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
we are prone to self-trust. It's just what we do as a people. We are prone to trust ourselves. Um, You know what self-trust is like? Let me see if I got... I brought something that I found at my granny's house. Oh, here we go. This, uh, these are grapes. Some of, you, some of you have plastic fruit in your house. I'm not dogging you for this, okay? I think it looks beautiful. That's, that's the issue is it looks a little too beautiful. But my granny, my granny used to always have plastic fruit at her house. And I can remember as a kid going over to her house, going, you know, going, my, 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 uh, uh, my papa and granny lived in this little like 800 square foot house on Home Street in Frankfort, Kentucky. And I would go in and First thing I'd want to do like, is like every kid, right? You want to go and you want to check the fridge. You want to get something to eat because you're always hungry for some reason, right? I don't know why, but you are. So you're going, you're going into there, and on the, on, the t- on the table every week, there was this, every time I'd go over there, there was this bowl of fruit. And every time I would go check that bowl of fruit, I would think, man, this fruit looks so good. This fruit, this fruit looks awesome. And every time I would go over to the fruit, hoping that it was real food, fruit, and it was always plastic fruit. Self-righteousness is like plastic fruit. It gives us the appearance of something that can sustain you. It gives you that appearance. It looks better than it really is. But the, 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 the reality is if I eat this plastic fruit right now, y'all are going to be taking me to the hospital, right? Because it ain't going to go well with my system. It's not actually going to give me sustenance. It's not, not actually going to nourish me. Self-righteousness is, is, uh, is so dangerous because we think that we can trust it because it looks so good. But you know what? This isn't connected to the vine that is Jesus, is it? It's empty. It's plastic. It looks good. It's worthless for what it was made for, right? It's, fruit that's not real can't sustain us. It can't nourish us. And this is exactly what self righteousness is. You see this man in Luke chapter 18, he began to to look at himself. He began to look at himself and say, look at all the ways that I'm pleasing God by the way that I'm living right now. Look at how good I am. And so he began to look inside of himself, his checklist, his list of things that he could do to show God that he was worthy of his love. Yet the tax collectors on the other side of of the story, he says, God, I got nothing to give you. Like I'm I'm absolute worthless. I can't I can't even I can't even I can't even really like look at you. And he says, Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Now this wasn't a fatalistic cry like, oh, I can't do it on my own, so I, God just please have mercy on me. It was like it was this cry. God, have mercy on me. I can't do this on my own. I've got to this place in my life where I realize that all of my work for you is absolutely like plastic fruit. Unless it's connected to the vine. You see, there's two extremes that you can go to with self-righteousness. There's the self-righteousness that we see in the tax collector, which is kind of like this comparison game, right? What's he do? He says, hey, look, at least I'm not like this guy. I'm better than this guy. So he's kind of measuring up to this guy. I think this is a tendency that a lot of us have. I would say that probably women are more uh, prone to this, at least... At least from what I've experienced, women are more prone to this, especially like young moms. Man, I just, I hate that garbage where it's like, oh, look at me, my kid's doing this, my kid's doing that. That comparison will suck the absolute life out of us. Or whether it's job performance, the house you live in, uh, the, the family that you have, whatever it is, that comparison is self-righteousness. 
It offers no hope at all because it depends on ourselves. You know the other type of self-righteousness that we're prone to? It's this posture of unrighteousness. And I think a lot of times, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that this is for men or for women or both, but typically I see men that struggle with this uh, scenario a little bit more. And unrighteousness says, God, I, I, I can't, because I can't live up, I don't deserve you. It's just as dangerous as the pharisaical self-righteousness. Because instead of saying, Jesus, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner, it just says, I can't even talk to God, I'm just going to run away. See, it's, it's kind of more, it's a, it's a more acceptable form of self-righteousness, but it still has the same plastic, plasticity. <laughs> it's of no use. It's of no use. So I don't know which way you tend to lean on that. Either, hey, I'm not righteous and I can't accept your grace, God, or, or hey, God, I don't really need your grace. I don't know which way you lean on that, but both of those are absolutely hopeless. And Jesus came to save people that are trying to save themselves in both of those camps. So wherever you're at today, the answer is the cross of Jesus, which confronts us. What are we going to do with this man? It's the question that everybody in the world has to answer. What am I going to do with the man on the cross? The bloody, naked man on the cross that said he died for me. What do I do with him? Do I say, hey, that's, that's not for me or I don't need that? Or do I see that it was exactly for me? And my question for us is this. What would it look like for New City Church to celebrate grace instead of self-righteousness? What would it look like for us as a community to actually celebrate the grace of God? Because you know what Jesus is celebrating as he's coming down the Mount of Olives on that donkey when he cries? He's celebrating the fact that the thing that they think they need is not the thing that they need. And he's weeping because he wishes they would get it. Jesus is celebrating grace. Those people needed him just like you and I need him. What would it look like for us to celebrate grace? You know what I think it would look like? I think it would look a lot like 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And maybe even this, by the grace of God, I am where I am. A lot of us are disappointed with where we are in life right now. We want to be at a different stage in our careers, in our families, we, in, our, in our marital status. We want to be in a different place. Um, what would it look like for us to celebrate grace and to promote grace as a community instead of self-righteousness? Because my prayer is that New City Church would be an environment of grace where, where, where grace is celebrated, not licentiousness that, that says, hey, I don't need Jesus, I'm just going to go do my own thing, but grace, that we're all sinners in need of his absolute grace and we all sin a little bit differently and there's, there's nothing that frustrates us and makes us more uncomfortable than being around people that sin differently than we do, Right? There's nothing that makes us more uncomfortable. What would it look like to say, hey, you sound a little different than me. We're both chasing Jesus together. We can live in community together. What would it look like for us to be a community that celebrates grace? Because Jesus is only a king for sinners. And he became the king of sinners by taking the cross for us. And that's what Palm Sunday is all about. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, that you did not give us what we wanted in Jesus. Father, I'm thankful that you didn't overthrow Rome that Passover week and leave us still stuck in the mire of our sin. Father, the question that we have to acknowledge today is what are we going to do with the man on the cross? Whether you're young, whether you're old, whether this is your first time or you've been here since we planted, what are you going to do with the man on the cross? Because we either reject him or we embrace him.
And my heart today would be that we would all embrace the work of Jesus, the work that he came to do to soften our hearts and draw us to the Father. So Father, I pray that conviction would come to bear upon our hearts today, that the man on the cross is our only hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.